We're going to finish up looking at the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. And again, as you look at the overall picture of Galatians, you know that he's been talking about being justified by faith. That it's not by works that we are made righteous. That is by receiving Jesus Christ. That by works of righteousness that we have done, no one can be saved. Again, faith alone. But then he moves into chapters 5 and 6 and saying, not only can uh, uh, works not save you, it can sanctify you. And again, verse 19 talks about the works of the flesh. In other words, the only thing the flesh can produce are those types of sins. Fornication, uncleanness, on, right on down to verse 20, the end of 21. And he says, those who practice such things continually will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you see those things in your lives consistently and you do not see any of the fruit in your life of verses 22 and 23, you really have to start asking the question, am I truly saved? Or am I just religious thinking I'm getting to heaven because I do the right things? But again, in verse 22, he says, but let me show you what the fruit of the Spirit. Again, singular, fruit, fruit, singular. Let me show you the facets of what the Spirit of God will do in a person's life. By the way, it's not a complete list. But he just tried to smatter it. I mean, you don't see the word godliness. You don't see the word holiness, righteousness. It's not a complete list, but he's saying, listen, this is what the Spirit produces. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the facets of what the Spirit of God does in producing His fruit Against such thing, there is no law. You're not going to find a law out there that says, no, no, you, thou shalt not love. Thou shalt not have peace. Thou shalt not have joy. Against such things, there's no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So again, the fruit, and we're going to be looking primarily at the last two aspects, and that is gentleness. If you have a King James Bible, it's verse 23, it's meekness or gentleness and also self-control. Alex Haley, the author of Roots, has a picture in his office showing a turtle sitting atop a fence. Why does he have it? To remind himself of something. If you see a turtle on a fence post... You know, you know he had some help. Do you think he had some help? I think he had some help. Alex says this. Anytime I start thinking, wow, isn't this marvelous what I've done? Have you ever had that thought? Wow, marvelous. Look at how much I've done. I look at that picture and remember how the turtle, which he says is me, got up on the post. Now, In fact, there's even a name for that. Do you know what the name of that is? Because you see that on farms periodically. You know, some will find it true. It's called a post turtle. Seriously. Post turtle. Well, you see a post turtle. <laughs> now, why do I bring that up? Because I want that to kind of cement in your mind. That if you are indeed saved by grace, right? If you were brought to God when you were running away from God, and if God is now producing His workmanship in you, which Ephesians 2 talks about, that he is, it's, it's his workmanship, right? It's his, it's his process. It's, it's in his mind. What does it say? His workmanship, what? Created in Christ Jesus for good works. 
But again, before you get to the created in Christ Jesus for good works, you have his workmanship. And so if you are someone who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, which is the only way of salvation, and now God is working in you to produce his fruit, just remember that it's God's work, right? It is God's work. You can take the turtle off. No, we have to remember. Now, I'm not saying that we don't cooperate with the Spirit. We have to be clear on this. But when it's all said and done, all, catch this, all glory goes to God. That's all I'm trying to say. All glory goes to God. Because we are His workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works. Now again, as you start seeing these different fruit produced in your life, and I hope that you are looking to see if these fruit, this fruit, this, these aspects are being produced. Again, love. Love has to do with selfless commitment to others. Wanting to do the best for them in word, deed, and, 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 uh, and, and what you say. Okay? In other words, you're ministering to others. It's loving God first, but then it's being played out with others. It's obedience to God, all that stuff. It's selflessness. It's looking to serve God. It's looking to serve others. If you, as you see that played out, again, thank you, Lord. Not, well, I must have come from a great family. I have a good... Well, I do. I did, I did come from a great family. But again, before I got saved, I had... My love was very selfish. It was uh, manipulative. I'll love you if. God, try, God takes out the if. Okay, God, I, I want to love. How about joy? Again, this deep sense of well-being that, uh, that is in the heart because everything is well between my Lord and myself. But it's not based on circumstance. Just like peace, it's not based on circumstance. So you might say, well, I, had a lot of, I have a lot of love and uh, joy and peace. But again, is it based on circumstance? Because God's peace and God's joy is not based on circumstance. How about long-suffering? Long-spirited. You don't lose heart with others. In other words, you're, you're, um, you're a marathoner. Are you a marathoner when it comes to people? Again, primarily people. And you know what? God will test you. How does he do that? He brings someone irritating in your life. And then he says, do you have patience with them? Again, do you have, are you long-suffering? Are you tolerant? Are you calm in those situations? Or do you blow? And then after you blow, you feel good. Well, that's not long-suffering. But see, do you see the difference? Sometimes we say we're long-suffering, but wait a second. Wait till that irritating, frustrating person, that even maybe someone that you hate, comes into your life. How do you deal with them? Then we go on to the next one. Kindness. To the tender concern for others. More importantly, and there's a constant readiness to help. We looked at that last week. In other words, I'm not just kind, but I want to help. I want to meet a need. I want to say that word. I want to write that note. I want to make sure they understand. By the way, no one person can do that in a church. Please don't think, well, that's what you have to do, John. Well, I'll do my section. I'll try to, I'm going to do my very best to fulfill my responsibility in this church. But one thing I've really realized in the last two years, we all have to work together. See, we all have to be about kindness, a constant readiness to help. Who has God put in your life, in this church, in your family? It might not be someone in this church. It might be your neighbor. But you're, you are constantly helping that person. Think of one in our church who is ministering to an older gentleman in a nursing home. Not even part of our church, not even a believer. But he has expended himself for that person. 
That's a kindness. That's Actually, that's Andy Norris. That's the idea. Expending yourself. Why not tell you the name? All right. Kindness. Then there's goodness. Generosity. That kindness and goodness kind of plays along with each other. Uh, constant readiness with an intensity, I guess. And then faithfulness. Doing it all the time. What is faithful? Faithful means you're dependable. You're reliable. You're trustworthy. You're not a flash in the pan. You see what the Spirit of God is doing in our lives? Selfless. It's not about circumstance. Oh, it's about people, long-suffering. What about people? It's kindness, it's goodness. Is it just for a flash in the pan? No, no. It's consistent, reliable. You see how there's actually, a, it kind of plays itself out the way he's put them down. Well, let's get to the, the next one, gentleness. Gentleness. Let me just say one other thing. With all those things, it's, how, how do I get those? Yes, it's reading the Word of God. It's the Word of God that's going to transform our hearts. Yes, it's prayer. That's dependence on God. Yes, it's fellowship, being encouraged. It's all those things. I mean, how do I walk with the Spirit of God? It's putting those disciplines in my life as well. It's not just, God, do it. I'm not going to do anything about it, but just do it in my life. Well, no, no. You have to pursue God. Well, you have to get into His Word. You have to go before Him in prayer. You have to be with His people. Be willing to be um, sandpapered with His people. In other words, you have to have fellowship. You have to have connection. Find yourself a small group. It might be a men's prayer group. It might be a home group. Find yourself in a a situation where other Christians are able to do the sandpaper effect in your life. Otherwise, you're like an island. And understand this, that trials are a great part of this whole process. I like what Wiersbe says, great Christians are made by great trials. You can study and you can pray, and those are critical. But then God puts it into your life and he gives you a trial. It might be a level one trial. It might be a level three trial. It might be a level eight trial, right? Intensity. But the idea is he puts trials in our life because now I'm depending on his word. Now I'm really praying. Now I'm asking the people to pray, fellowship. Now I'm asking the people to help me out. How do I take care of this situation? Because I learned about it, but now it's really here in my face. I need counsel. I need encouragement. I need you to actually instruct me. I need you to confront me if I'm doing it wrong. Okay, so great Christians are made by great trials. And those trials are used as we get into his word, as we pray, as we fellowship, as we have the one anothering going on. Do you see how all that plays out? So again, as we look at love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, you know what really we need? We, we need to be part of an imperfect body of believers that are going to help us play those out because if they were perfect, it'd be hard to play that out. I need somebody to irritate me. I need somebody, I, I need some circumstances that are not the best because then I can start knowing whether it's really joy from God and peace or is it just manufactured, is it, is it counterfeit? Well, let's go on. Gentleness. Again, some versions, King James specifically, says meekness. Uh, the idea is mildness. By the way, unfortunately in our English language, meekness is associated with weakness. Probably because they, you know, they sound like. But again, they're actually diametrically opposed. Meekness is not weakness. Now, there is, a, there is a, an element of humility in weakness. Make sure you get that. I don't know if I put that in your notes. But really, meekness or gentleness... By the way, I'm going to be interchanging those two things. Meekness, gentleness. That's the word I'm talking about. It's the eighth characteristic. Is really power under control. Just think of that, power under control. You can think of it as a horse. 
you know, first get the horse and it box and it doesn't want to deal with it, you know. And, you know, one time I was riding a horse years ago at my Uncle Roger's. Yeah, put me on the horse, you know. Something I did, I probably hit it or something. It took off, you know. Like, I'm like, wait, there's a, there's a um, clothesline. It was going right for the clothesline, between the clothesline. And, like, I, all I remember is, like, hanging on to its, you know, thing like this. And, it, you know, thankfully it stopped. I don't even remember the whole thing. i terrified. Why would anybody put me on the horse? No. <laughs> that thing wasn't under control. It had power, but it wasn't under control. Now, you take a horse, and you break it, yada, yada, and now it's under control, okay? You can ride it. You can make it work. Do it, everything, you know, it needs to happen. Again, when you think of meekness, it's power, but it's under control, Again, Jesus Christ is referred to in Matthew 11, I am gentle, that's the word meek, and lowly in heart. There you see the humility, but the idea is it was power under, think about the Son of God, I am meek. That's power under control. Corinthians says the meekness and gentleness of Christ. What's interesting, one author said this, you only see Christ being referred to as meek in his incarnation. You don't see it when he comes back in Revelation. Okay? Still power under control, but he didn't actually not reference like that. You know, you might say, well, give me an example. Remember when Jesus was arrested? Actually, let's go to it. John chapter 18. We can just see it for a second. John 18. Verse 2. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew, John 18, verse 2, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Basically, Judas brings uh, uh, guards to rest. Uh, from, it says, the chief priests and Pharisees, Jesus, verse 4, therefore, knowing all things and w- that would come upon him, went forward and said to him, Whom are you seeking? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. This was just, just after the kiss. Now, when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. I love that. Don't you love that? Poof! The whole, you know, garrison. The whole part. And he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke of those whom he gave me. I have lost none. Now, why do I say that's meekness? It's power under control because he could have just as easily, they could have been gone, vaporized, out of here. But just the fact that they fell and then were able to be brought back up and they were the ones that escorted him to the trial. Um, you know, at the same point, you know, they were, they were asking questions and this is where Peter, you know, cuts off the ear. But he says this, he says, don't you know that I could ask the Father... And he would send 12 legions of angels. You know how many 12 legions is? 72,000. You see in uh, Kings in Old Testament, one angel killed 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrian army. So what he's saying is, listen, I'm protected. It's not that, it's not that just that they had to fall. I could call angels. I, everyone could be wiped out. I could just think it and you'd be wiped out. See, that's power under control. He allowed it to continue on. Every part of his... Uh, being questioned by Herod and Pilate and before the, 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 uh, the Jews, crucifixion, everything, power under control. Just understand that. That's what meekness is. 
Now again, the root word for meekness, and again, I know it's hard for definition, but it means this. It is an inwrought grace of the soul. Now just, just kind of savor this if you can grab it. It's an inwrought grace of the soul. We accept God's dealings with us as good, and therefore without disputing or resisting. That's why it says there in John, he, knows, he knew what was coming. He knew that this was part of the plan of God. That's why the soldiers fell backwards and were not vaporized. He was just allowing God's will to be done in his life, which was, he was going to be the sacrifice for us. So we don't dispute or resist. Now, how does this play out for us as believers? If you're a meek person, you trust God. And you don't resist. And you accept God's purposes for you. Okay? In the Old Testament, the meek are those wholly relying on God rather than their own strength to defend them against injustice. It is the exact opposite of self-assertiveness. Now, this is where we can really start seeing, am I weak or meek? (laughs) Not weak, meek. Am I meek? Am I Uh, self-assertive? Am I driven by self-interest? See, a meek meek person doesn't have himself as the center point at all. Again, it is rooted from trust in God's goodness and control over a situation. You could say this, a meek person is self-forgetful. It's not about me. It's about God and his people. That's really, it's about God and his program. It's about God and his kingdom. It's not about me. A meek person says, Lord, thank you for saving me. Lord, I trust you and rely on you. And it's not about me defending myself. Again, there's a time to defend, but it's always for God's purposes. Just like with Jesus, he did clean out the the temple, but it was for God's purposes. did it twice. An example of meekness in the Old Testament is Moses. Uh, Numbers, you don't have to turn there, but Numbers 12.3 says, Now the man Moses was very meek, very humble, above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. I mean, the Old Testament actually says he's the meekest man that had lived up to that point compared to all the other men of this earth. Now again, would you say Moses was meek? If you go back through Exodus, through De- Deuteronomy, what do you find in Moses' life? He killed an Egyptian guard for abusing a Hebrew slave. He was a murderer in that sense. He demanded that Pharaoh let the Hebrews go. He called down judgment on the Hebrews when they sinned against God in the wilderness. Again, you could say he was humble, he was submissive, he was obedient, but do you see that strength under control? Now you might say, well, was there really strength under control when he killed the, the slave, or the, 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 the guard? Well, that's debatable. But again, Scripture says he was a meek man. He was allowed to be used by God. Was he perfect? Did he ever smack anything that stopped him from going into the promised land, the rock? I'm not saying Moses was perfect, but it does say that he was very meek. So again, we have to ask ourselves, am I meek? The gentle person, the meek person has a sweet temper. Are you a sweet-tempered person? A sweet spirit towards these, towards God. Lord, I trust you. Towards others. Towards daily frustrations. Are you edgy? Just on edge? I am at times. I might as well tell you because otherwise my kids would. No. Those are times when I'm not meek. 
Meekness means power under control. Lord, everything's under control. None of this stuff has caught you by surprise. Send me the trials because then I know whether I'm not. See, they're not prone to anger. They're humble. They're sweet. They're mild. Because why? They're not trying to protect themselves. A lot of our problems are because it's very self-centered. We try to protect. Even when it comes to my kids, I find one of the ways I'm trying to protect myself more than anything else right now in my life is protecting my reputation. I'm raising kids. You better turn out the way I want you to turn out because it's a reflection on me. And sometimes that's one of the greatest detriments to good parenting because all of a sudden it becomes about me and not about God and God's purpose in that child's life. Sometimes as parents, we don't let our kids fail, which might be the best scenario for them. Okay, I'm saying, and again, I don't want my child to fail, but do you see how we can be selfish parents? Well, let me, let me give you a weed, okay? After telling you strength under control, what is a weed? <laughs> well, one of the ways weeds, the opposite of true meekness would be an outburst of anger. In fact, that is a, a, actually a, a work of the flesh, okay? An outburst, an outburst. Or actually, it says outburst of wrath. Uh, do you remember when Jesus uh, was not received in the Samaritan village? And this is what his disciples said. I mean, he was walking through. He wasn't received. His message was being rejected. And James and John saw this, and they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just like Elijah did? That's not meekness. Because what they were saying is, listen, they're not receiving you, which means they're not receiving us. Do you want me to call fire down? And sometimes that's, that's the opposite of meekness, is that vengeance. Lord, they hurt me. And now I just want to pray precatory prayers against them. I, I want you to destroy them, hurt them, make them suffer. They made me suffer. I'm getting angry, Lord, bitter. See, you can start saying it's not, that's not meekness. Meekness is saying, I trust you, Lord. Even the family you put me in, even the situations of my life, I trust you. Now, what would be the opposite? Now, that's the opposite. Let me give you a counterfeit. Now, the, the difference is this. The opposite is the weed of the fruit, from the fruit. The counterfeit kind of looks like it, but it's not the real thing. I would say this. The counterfeit of meekness is being cowardly. Uh, convictionless. Is that a word? Maybe two words. Courageless. Again, kind of connecting it with weakness, meekness is weakness. You know, I don't want you to think that. Because meekness, true biblical meekness, is power under control. They, this is a man of strong or a woman of strong convictions. They don't have false humility. That would be a counterfeit. It's uh, kind of like... Um, Casper milk toast. You ever heard of Casper milk toast? You got Casper milk toast up there? That's Casper milk toast. Yeah, I had to kind of stretch it. He was uh, a character created by H.T. Uh, Webster. And he was called the Timid Soul. And again, he, he produced this man. In fact, Webster, the, the artist, said this. This is the type of man who speaks softly and gets hit with a big stick. You know... And it came to mean, Casper Milktoast, mean Milktoast, bland, soft, but primarily timid, indecisive, cowardly, or just plain wimpy. 
This is what he says. If you, if you don't think it's presumptuous of me, I'd like to uh, her, uh, wish you a merry, uh, at least a reasonably pleasant uh, Christmas as we are entitled to things are uh, being what they are. You know, just kind of, ah. Uh... Anyways, you can get rid of him. You know anybody like that? See, I don't want you to think, oh, I see what meekness is. I'm just supposed to be... No, no. You don't want to be the type of person that just avoids trouble at all costs. That's cowardly. I'm talking truth, especially truth. Something is said and you don't want to confront it because someone might get hurt. Someone might get offended. Again, true meekness is power under control, controlled by God. It's steel-like character. Character like steel. See, we're called in Timothy to be a good soldier. We're called to fight the good fight. We're called to pre- present truth boldly. I, this last week, a lady came in our church and said, would you hang this up? And we decided not to. It's called gas drilling, the hard facts and personal experiences about fracking. You know what fracking is? I mean, only one person knows about fracking? Come on now. Hear from the families of Dimerick, PA, about the impacts of their lives and community. Well, the point is, is this. This is about drilling for gas and the possible problems it might have in our community if it happened here. Now, I don't know if you're for it or against it. I'm not going to post it and I'm not going to tell you where I'm at. But the point is, is this. A lady who I don't know came into our church, who had not been here, I don't think, ever, and gave us a poster and saying, listen, I want you to post this up. I'd like you to put this in your bulletin. I'd like you to ha- encourage people to get there. We need to, you know, say something about this. I mean, she was excited. She was committed. She wanted to get the message out. She, she wasn't Casper Milktoast. Now, we have the good news of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the only way of salvation through the death Burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet sometimes we back down, right? Again, meekness is power under control. We need to be bold with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the point. The counterfeit is cowardly. Hopefully you're not cowardly. Let me give you a couple places where this is used. In 2 Timothy 2.25 it says, In humility, that's the word gentleness, correcting or chastising those who are in opposition. It actually tells us, listen, those who are in opposition, go gently, humbly, meekly, but present truth. You know of someone that's walking, not walking in the truth? Are you willing to do what it says right there in humility, chastening those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance? Again, we need to be bold. Or like in Peter, 1 Peter 3, it says... <coughs> Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense. That's apologia. It's where we get a word apologetics. Be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness. There it is. And fear. So again, in two places in Scripture, specifically it says, listen, if someone is erring, go to them, but go with gentleness. But power under control. If someone even needs to know the truth, go to them, power under control. No, I don't believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. Wait, 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 wait. John, John 15, or 14 says he is. In other words, be willing to say, listen, what you believe is wrong. Wrong not because I believe it, it's because it's in Scripture. You know how you'll know if you are gentle in that situation? If you're selfless, you're not going to argue. See, sometimes we get into a conversation, and then they don't agree, and all of a sudden our dander gets up. 
What do you mean you don't agree? I just told you. And then you go to the Scripture, and they don't agree. And now sometimes we start losing it because we start getting self in there. So again, meekness is selfless, but it's powerful. It's, it's full of conviction. And we're willing to speak truth. And even if they deny or reject you, this is it. This is what Scripture says. So again, that's another part of the fruit that God is producing in our life is gentleness. Just the word itself, gentle. There's been times, I, I know when I was in college and I was a senior and I've, I talked to a couple men. One was Dr. Berrickman. And what was the other one? Just a, Klein. You knew exactly what I was thinking of. Um, anyways, both of those men, I would come in and I would say something that was kind of controversial, kind of drawing them in. And they would just, no, this is what... But sometimes they wouldn't even tell me what the Scripture says. They would just say this. Well, this is what James chapter 5 says. See, they just threw it out. Listen, I'm not going to argue with you, John. This, this is what Ephesians 4 says. And, and you, you think about it. Because they were very gentle, very humble. They weren't there to... They could, have, they could have ground me up, stomped on me, and spit me out. Right? They were professors. But the reality was is they were very gentle and kind towards me. So that's, that's the first. And then the final one is self-control. Self-control. Nothing is to master us. The idea, the definition of self-control, again, it means sober, restrained, temperate, the, the King James says. Uh, it is the ability to restrain our passions and appetites. It's interesting that the last one has got to do with our appetites, our physical, sensual appetites. It literally can mean holding oneself in. Or self-mastery, if you will. Again, the ability to take control of oneself, to do the hard thing that is right. It's to subordinate our desires, and primarily, again, in the sensual area, in the sexual area, in the area of food, in the area of, of drink, and all the things, all the, the physical uh, sensations that are in this world. Things could be thrown in that too. A Christian, God is trying, God is building into a Christian the ability to say no. To no to those things. Uh, no to be a drunkard. No to be in a glutton. No to be sexually immoral. See, he wants us to learn to restrain ourselves through his power. In one sense, God doesn't need to be, you know how I've been pointing out each one, God is love, God is peace, God gives peace, God is joy. In one sense, God doesn't have to restrain himself. He doesn't. Because the reality is, he is a free being. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is forever unchanged. So in that sense, this doesn't apply to God. But in the incarnation, you do see self-control. <coughs> Again, at the temptation, at the cross, throughout his life, you see in Christ control. But in the truest sense, he didn't, because he's a free being. He's, he is the only free being in this entire universe. So again, self-control. The ability to regulate one's conduct by principle and sound judgment. In other words, knowing what I'm to do and then doing it, rather than by impulse, desire, or what other people are doing. It's really the idea of obedience. Are you an obedient Christian? Because you know what to do, and you're actually disciplining your life. You're seeing how the Spirit of God is controlling your life. So you're actually a controlled person. You can see this in different areas in your life. What's your thought life? Like, are you controlling your life as far as... Because again, what are the works of the flesh? Look at verse 19. 
These are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. That goes everywhere, for everything from committing adultery with another married person all the way down to just your thought life, uncleanness, lewdness. How's your thought life? How's your, th- uh, how's your activity on the computer? Uh, how's your ability to, uh, to uh, control those other sensual? How's your eating habits? That's a big one. If you're walking in the Spirit, the idea is you're able to control your the, 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 every part of your body, including your eating. Now, again, we sometimes get real, you know, frustrated, almost kind of like this, with a person who's a drunkard, can't can't control drink. But how about us who can't control food? Um, so again, self control. Self control would play out on how I treat you. You make me irritated. Do I blow? Or am I controlled? And is there a control that says, Lord, again, meekness? Or, Lord, I'm not going to blow because I'd lose my, lose my job. Like, for me, that could be happen, right? What if I just gave you an expletive? What if I blew at you? I was really frustrated and just said, blankety, blankety, blank. You know what you'd say on the way out? See ya. But hopefully that's not why I'm not doing it. It's because in my heart I have control. Just because I don't say it outwardly doesn't mean I'm not, not thinking it. So, what's the counterfeit? What's the weeds? I'm not thinking it, Brent. Okay. <clears throat> Again, works of the flesh. Those are the weeds, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. You know, Philippians 3 says this, whose God is their belly. 3.19. Whose God is their belly. In other words, unrestrained, sensual, fleshly, bodily appetites. It can go everywhere again from... You know, I'm just giving you a few examples from uh, the immorality issues to the food issues to the drink issues. We should be a controlled people. Not perfect. But let me give you a... I was thinking about this. What would be a counterfeit? Now, again, not the opposite is a weed. I gave you that, you know, all the ungodly stuff. But you know what a counterfeit would be? Our gimmicks. What do I mean? Sometimes we don't have peace, so we take a chemical. That's a gimmick. If your heart's not being changed, it's a gimmick. Sometimes we can't control our weight, so we take a chemical. We take a pill. Uh, I just went through a... Uh, a diet deal and mine was similar to that I'm not sure if it was a gimmick or not but the point is this I'm kind of throwing out on both sides be careful what I'm saying I'm not saying don't take a heart pill because that's that's something that is needed if your heart is you know that situation all I'm saying is this and I'm going to leave this very general but you have to decide in your own life sometimes we have issues of control self-control and we don't do very good job in our own self-control and we look to medicine and pills that have really nothing. It's just masking the problem. But we take them because they make us feel better or do something that we can't do on our own with the Spirit of God's help. That's all I'm trying to say. Okay? Be careful that the counterfeit to your self-control isn't just a gimmick. All right? Or like this. I'm angry, but I'm not going to say to anybody because I'd get fired. But when I go home, I'll kick the cat and hit a pillow and just be... That's a gimmick then. I'm kicking the cat or hitting the pillow. Don't use gimmicks. Make sure they're the real thing. Now again, cultivation. That's the third part. Cultivation. Peter 1 says this, For this very reason, give all diligence. Add to your faith. What? Add to it what? Virtue. To virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control. Why do I saying that? Because it's clear in Scripture that you're supposed to add to your faith. Just like you're supposed to work on love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness, you're also supposed to work on self-control. 
Yes, it's the Spirit's fruit working out, but we have a part in that. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, this is the the best passage on self-control and why you would do it. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Here's Paul, the great apostle Paul, but he's saying, listen, I'm running in a race. You run in the race. Understand that running in a race takes discipline. Is it hard work to run in a race? Oh, I hate running. <laughs> I did it for what? One, uh, probably four, four months when I was a seventh grader and realized at that point, never again. I don't want to... I mean, like I'm sucking air and my, my side is hurting. And I'm like, well, these people are certifiable. Why would they do this? But anyways, it's hard to run in a race. And he says, do, do you not know that those who run in a race all run? Probably talking about the Isthmus games that were held in Corinth. But one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain. That's the goal. In other words, run your Christian life so that you will be rewarded at the end. Don't just assume, well, it doesn't really matter. It all happens. No, no. You have a part in this. And everyone who competes, that's the word agonizomai. It means struggle. It's painful. By the way, nothing against you runners. I look at you with somewhat envy in my heart. I can't believe they can do that. How can they enjoy that? You know? Uh, maybe not envy. Just whatever. For the prize, look at this, uh, everyone in all things, uh, for the prize is temperate. In other words, uh, for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but you an imperishable. That's the reward. Therefore, I run, I exert myself thus, not with uncertainty. In other words, I'm not just like doing after no goal, I have a goal. Thus I fight. He's not talking about shadow boxing. Back then, when they got into a ring in the Olympic Games, you kept fighting. There wasn't uh, time frames like three-minute rounds. You kept fighting till you knocked the other person out. And he's saying, listen, I'm going to give it all. This Christian life, I'm going to do it all for God's glory. But I'm going to do it with a goal in mind. I want to be rewarded. Thus I fight. Not as one who beats the air. This is not shadow boxing. This is a real thing. I discipline my body. In other words, I even knock out my bodily impulses. I'm not talking about asceticism here, he's just saying, listen, I'm going to do everything that God, all the resources that God has put in, in, in my path, such as the Word of God and prayer and fellowship and encouragement and admonition of one another, all those things are going to be used. And I bring it into subjection. I make it my slave rather than letting my body be the master. Right? How many of you, your bodies are the master? Oh, you have these goals and you want to do this, but every day it masters you. I, br- I discipline my body. I, I bring it in subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should be disqualified. I don't stand and get the reward. I am disqualified. So again, that has a lot of application, but the point is this. To be disciplined is a, is a choice, and you have to be willing, and it's hard. It's hard. Yes, God does it in your life, but it's hard. It is hard. It is difficult. It is painful, but it's worth it because there's a reward. So again, a self-controlled Christian is not easily seduced into following the corrupt promptings of its flesh. But question, how many of you were this last week? Maybe you struggle with uh, the mind and you allowed your mind to go in the wrong direction. Or you struggle with food, but you allowed yourself to gorge. Like at a dance yesterday, it had four pieces of dessert. <laughs> that was me. Um, <clears throat> So the point is, are you able to reign in your inner spirit? 
and do the right thing and make your body be the servant and not the master. Again, against such there is no law. God wants to discipline. Because I'll tell you what, you can only really make progress as you are disciplined. Many of us have great intentions. Oh, I want to get into the Word of God. Oh, I want to pray for 20 minutes a day. Good intentions, but we can't. The body becomes the master. Oh, I'm tired. I can't, I can't seem to focus. You know. Again, discipline yourself. Go back to 1 Corinthians 9, that passage. It's a great one. All right, let's finish this up quickly. Galatians 5. Let's just finish the last couple of verses. In verse 24, And those who are Christ <coughs> have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I think the first, verse 24, I think, is the reality, and verse uh, 25 is the responsibility. You have the reality and the responsibility. I think the first one, again, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh. I think that's a reality. Now, again, what is crucifixion? Physical death. Most of, all, most of the time, that's used for physical death. Here he's using it in a spiritual sense. You can write down a couple of verses. Romans 6 says this, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. Past tense. That the body of sin might be done away with. That we would, should no longer be slaves of sin. I think that's what he's getting at in verse 24. Or to say it this way. See, there's two different views on this verse 24. Some say this is mortification. Us killing the flesh. Like Colossians 3 where it says, Mortify therefore the members in your body. I don't believe that's what he's getting at there. I think he's looking at the reality and saying, Listen, you're... Your old man, your old regenerate man was crucified on, at, at the cross when Christ died. Okay? The idea being this. By faith you are so cemented to Christ that he and you are as one person which cannot be separated but remains attached to him forever. Now, that's how Luther said it. Which is basically what we are presenting in baptism. What is baptism? That we died with Christ, co-death. That we were buried with Christ and that we were resurrected with Christ, co-resurrection. That we are in Christ. We are united with Christ. And as such, the body of this flesh has actually been killed in one sense, in the sense that it no longer has power over us, that we're no longer, as it says in uh, Romans 6, a slave to sin. We're no longer a slave to sin. Now, it doesn't mean that's, that uh, the sin principle, the sin um, force still doesn't have some influence in our life, but the shackle of being chained to it has been broken. Okay, I do believe that that's what he's talking about in that verse. It's a reality. Just like Galatians 2.20, we saw it a few months ago. I have been crucified with Christ. What do you mean crucified? You didn't, Paul, you weren't up on the cross. Well, no, but the reality is when I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, it was as if spiritually I was. And I participate in his death, burial, and resurrected. I am in Christ, and all the riches of him have been given to me through God. That's why Romans 6, 11, a few verses later says, Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. What do you mean, reckon yourself to be dead? Brent, are you totally dead to sin? Do you ever sin? Or are, you, are you the one perfect person in this congregation? Sin occasionally. Okay. I love Brent. He's honest. But... Point is this. Reckon, what do you mean reckon? It means this, that as a, a believer in Jesus Christ, I have to reckon, understand, that if I go back to my old ways before Christ, it can't give me pleasure, it can't give me joy, it can't give me peace. Those sins cannot do for me what they used to do now that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. 
I'm not saying they did a lot of good. They were condemning me. But the point was, they gave me a sense of peace and joy, a sense of satisfaction, a sense of fulfillment, happiness. He says, listen, reckon yourself to be dead. You've passed the bridge. The bridge has been burned. You can't go back. That's the reality. Look at the number two, though. Let's keep in step with the Spirit. This is our responsibility. Verse 25, if or because we live, that's present tense, it means it's a reality, in the Spirit, in other words, saved, let us also walk in the Spirit. Now you might say, well, that's really neat, because he uses the same word walk in verse 25 as he did in verse 16, walk in the Spirit. Except in Greek, it's a totally different word. It means keeping in step with the Spirit. It's a military term. Hey, oh, yeah. I, I never was... I should get Brent up here because he was a he was a Marine. I never had the privilege of being in the army, Marines or whatever. But again, soldiers not only march in formation, but they also run in formation. When they do, there is only one thing they have to worry about, which is keeping in step. That's what he's saying here. Keep in step with the spirit. By the way, a soldier does not need to worry about where they're going or how they're going to get there. They do not need to guess how much farther it is. And it's not like your kid in the back of the car when you're on a trip. Daddy, how much longer? You don't hear a soldier tell the sergeant, Hey, sergeant, how much longer? Their commanding officer will give them their orders as necessary. The only thing soldiers need to know is how to keep in step. Now, you play that out as far as the, the Christian. It's the Spirit of God who is the commander. He has filled us. He is in us, and He wants to control us, right? And we just have to keep in step with the Spirit. So He's saying, listen, the reality is, sin has been broken in your life, but now keep in step with the Spirit. Keep walking with Him. Because again, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. He wants to create good works in us. It's His workmanship. It's His. I have a brother-in-law that's a, uh, he used to be a violin maker, now it's cellos. And he'll take a hunk of wood, a bunch of hunks of wood, and, and, and give it about, I think it's three months to produce a cello, so he has them in sequence. And he is one of the top cello makers in the world. He goes to uh, competitions to England and Australia, and many times gets uh, third, second, or even first. But here's Larry, and there's a lot of scraping and drilling and sanding and more scraping and more... And all this stuff, and there's just this constant process. And then once he gets it made, he has to scrape a little bit more because it doesn't sound exactly right, and only the master really knows. And yet we look at that and we say, just get it done. But no, he knows exactly the, what he wants to hear out of that particular instrument. When it's with God, we, we are his workmanship. And now he saved you, and he wants to produce these facets of uh, fruit in your life and he's going to put you through a lot of drilling and sanding and scraping and more drilling and sanding and scraping. And you have to get around each other so that we're sanded, sanded properly. But we're his workmanship. And sometimes we get frustrated with that. Ah! Can't I just be done? Can't I just learn a verse or two? I like how J.I. Pack, I'll end with this. You know, how, can, can't it be easy, Lord? J.I. Packer says this, The Spirit works through means. Through the objective means and the subjective means. The objective means of grace, namely truth, prayer, fellowship, worship, the Lord's table, the things He's commanded us to. That's, those are objective means. 
Get in the Word. Get into prayer. Get connected. But then he goes on, he says, And with them, through the subject of means of grace, whereby we open ourselves to change. Lord, it's okay to change my circumstances, my relations, my people. Namely, thinking, listening, questioning oneself, examining oneself, admonishing oneself, sharing what is in one's heart with others. Those are the, that's the subjective part. It's not just about prayer and word. It's also about me challenging, thinking differently, humility. The Spirit shows His power in us, not by constantly interrupting our use of these means with visions, impressions, or prophecies. That may come to some. But rather by making these regular means, prayer, Bible study, others, effective to change us for the better and for the wiser as we go along. He ends with this. Habit forming is the Spirit's ordinary way of leading us to holiness. Habit forming. Are you in a good habits? Are you consistent in the Word? Are you consistent in prayer? Are you consistent with connected with others? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All Are all of them habitual ways of thinking and feeling? Are, are you seeing these produce? Is this what your goal is? He ends by this. Holiness by habit forming is not self-sanctification or self-effort. You're not trying to put it in by yourself. But it's simply a matter of understanding the Spirit's method and then keeping in step with them. Hey, oh, hey. That's what he wants. I know. You're saying you're a pathetic soldier. Well, I am. But the point is, is this. If you're called into the army or if you sign up for the army, you do exactly what the commander says. And if you've been called into God's army, you need to do what the, what the commander says. And Paul says, the commander says, keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step. Walk means keep in step with the Spirit. And just understand, like I gave you the illustration of my, uh, my uh, um, brother-in-law. It's a long process. He doesn't put a cello out in a week. For him, it's quick if he does it in three or four months. But the reality is he's the workman that knows the, the product he wants in the end. We're his product. So right now in this process of sanding and chipping and, and paint or uh, varnishing and drilling and, and making it sound right, what part of the process are you in right now? And what part are you getting real frustrated with and you're kicking against the Spirit? You see the point? Because he's bringing those things in to bring you up so that your level of music, the ability to produce music, as it were, is exactly what he wants. But we get frustrated in the process, and in, in, in so doing, we're no longer in step with the, the Spirit. We're no longer in step. And you might be bitter and angry and frustrated, and Lord, I don't know why, but you have to start saying, wait a second, I'm his workmanship that was created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is all part of the process, so that in the end, I play the music that he wants me to play.